Ephesians chapter 6. Continuing on from last week when we started to look at, at warfare. Christian life is warfare in case you haven't noticed. If you haven't noticed, you will soon. <laughs> um, previously in Ephesus, in the first three chapters, we were sitting. That was our posture. And we were watching what God has done in order to create this new humanity in Jesus. We were seated with him. In chapter 4, up until about halfway through chapter 6, we are walking. We're learning how to live the Christian life. Once we've, once we've grasped the truths, can you ever fully grasp them? The truths of Ephesians 1 to 3, what God has done. Once, once that's really got into you, how does it actually then work itself out? And I said last week, you need to be careful. You don't get that the wrong way around. Don't read Ephesians 4 and 5 and half of chapter 6 before you read Ephesians 1 to 3. Get the first three chapters first. See what Jesus has done and then see the life that overflows out of that whenever we take our position seated with him. So we were walking, walking being just the Jewish term to describe life, living, your walk. And then last week we saw that we're standing in the last half of Ephesians 6 and this is about spiritual warfare and hopefully a balanced and a biblical look at spiritual warfare um, rather than, than leaning into sort of over-sensational attitudes that, that sometimes come along with this. This is a clash of kingdoms, just so you know. <laughs> Whenever Jesus showed up and started his ministry, the kingdom of darkness just went berserk. In Mark chapter 1, we read that Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As soon as Jesus came on the scene, as soon as the kingdom of God came, darkness just started to stir up all over the place. It was almost as if it had been provoked by the presence of the kingdom of God. And if you embrace the kingdom of God, and if you seek to give your life to seeing God's kingdom come, and see God's kingdom affect lives and communities, you will find another kingdom will be provoked and awakened and will try to bring you down. This is a clash of kingdoms. And in Ephesians 6, we are talking about our, our garments for warfare. Last week, it was about God's strength, and we were told to stand strong in his strength. And now this week, and for a few weeks, we'll be looking at God's armor. <clears throat> Quite funny, because there's about maybe six or seven pieces of armor, depending on how you read it. And I was thinking, you know, will it, what way will it go here? Will it go with a 3-4 split, or a 4-3, or a 2-3-2, two, 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 or what formation are we going to pick? I got one done. <laughs> and then I realized I need to stop after one because there's too much. So we're only going to look at one today. But let's first of all read Ephesians 6 verses, from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Evil is real. 
The battle is real. We are on a spiritual battlefield. It is not fairy tale stuff. It is not hokum. It is not made up. It is biblical and it is real. We have an enemy who is supernatural, who is evil, and who utterly detests anything to do with Jesus. It is real. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. Paul likes military metaphors. And he uses them in his other letters as well. In in Philippians, he talks about Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier. And when he writes to Timothy, he tells Timothy to fight the battle well to fight the good fight of faith. And then again in his second letter to Timothy, he says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is not something that preachers and Bible teachers are forcing onto the scriptures, these military images. This is the language of Paul. We are in a battle. We are soldiers and we have an enemy and we need to learn how to fight. Putting on the armor is mentioned twice at the start of the passage that I just read. We're to put on the full armor of God so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. That's sort of normal practice. The devil's schemes attacking us on a daily, regular basis. And then two verses later, we're told, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. The day of evil. That seems to be particular times. I don't know if you've experienced them. I'm sure you have. Nigel spoke earlier of challenging times on the journey. Particular times when it just feels like the guns are pointed at you. So we're being opposed all the time, verse 11, the devil's schemes. But then there are times in our lives that you're just, you're not being pessimistic, but you are literally wondering, you know, how many minutes is it going to be before the next onslaught? Because it seems like everything's coming against you. And I want you to note in both of those verses, and this is really important, and it's, it's something just to get right as we talk about spiritual warfare. In both of those verses, the point is to stand. To stand. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. That is God's desire for you in spiritual warfare, that you would stand your ground. He does not want you to go down the garden and start looking behind the bushes for demons. We are not ghostbusters, all right? We are... Standing firm in a spiritual battle. We're not going to pick fights. We're not looking for fights to pick. We're not starting fights. But we know that the devil will attack us. 
And this is how we stand against those schemes and attacks. So Paul wants you to stand. God wants you to stand. And what that means then is that the devil is continually going to try and pound you to get you to fall. (laughs) He wants you to slip. He wants you to waver. He wants you to wobble. You ever been so tired from walking or running or cycling or whatever that you're, you can literally hardly keep the legs straight? Or you, you, know, you, you do a bit of exercise and you feel okay and then you can try to go upstairs and all of a sudden it's just everything's gone wobbly. And this is what the devil wants to do to us. He wants to make us wobble, waver, slip, slide, fall. But God has provided strength. And in this passage as well, he has provided armor that we would stand. John Stott says that wobbly Christians have no firm foothold in Christ and are an easy prey for the devil. I don't want to be a wobbly Christian. I don't want to be wobbly in any context, but I don't want to be a wobbly Christian. I want to be firm, immovable. Last week, there was a, a, a bunch of guys from NIE replacing an electric pole in the field or in the front, I can't remember if it was in the field or in the garden of, of my dad's house. And he said to me, he couldn't believe whenever they took the original pole out of the ground, it was, it was literally tw- 10 to 12 feet under the ground, this, this pole went. So it's not going to wobble and it's not going to waver. I want to be firmly rooted that whenever things come against me, against us as a church, against you, that we stand our ground, that we don't wobble and blow over. Now, the outfit is really important. I don't know if you looked at the news this week, but there was an event on this week called the Met Gala. Ever heard of the Met Gala? I know nothing about the Met Gala, but it appeared on my news, on my Apple News app this week, and I just couldn't resist having a look. Boy, is it dare, it's rare. You need to have the appropriate outfit for what you're about to engage in. I don't know if this happens at the Met Gala every year or if it was just this year, but some of the outfits were rather strange. Katy Perry went dressed as a chandelier. (laughs) Clean lit. (laughs) I've been waiting all night for that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Another another personality who shall remain unmentioned by name, uh, turned up in an outfit that she couldn't actually sit down in. So she couldn't go to the bathroom and it took three men to put her corset on. Hmm. Um, (laughs) Thankfully, after the event was over, Katy Perry changed into something much more appropriate for the after party and went dressed as a burger. (sighs) Strange. Um, But our outfits are important. Wearing the right thing for whatever we're engaging in is important. Mike said a week or two ago, whenever we went up the mountains, there was sort of one rule about what you were not to wear. No jeans. No jeans. And uh, if someone had turned up, let's say one of you ladies had turned up that day to, to, to go on that little gentle stroll, um, and you were wearing like a long flowing evening gown and a pair of stilettos, you would have got some odd looks and people might have said to you, do you have any idea what you're about to engage in? Why are you wearing that? You're not dressed appropriately for what you're about to do. But many of us in our Christian lives don't put on the armor of God. And then it, that must mean we really 
don't fully appreciate what we are getting into. We're getting into a battle. And one of the things that I want you to get over the the next few weeks or as long as it takes to go through this, I'm not going to rush it because there's a lot to chew on. But one of the things you've got to get is you need to put on the whole armor of God or you will not stand. Okay, that's just a simple sort of flip side of the verse says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. That also means if we leave pieces of it off, we're not going to be able to stand. It's really, really important that we dress appropriately for what we're going to get involved in. It's also really important to emphasize this to new believers. As you know, or most of you know, we've had the real joy of seeing Adam come to faith in the past week or so. And he's been listening to this later on on SoundCloud. So, hello, brother. How are you? But we've had the real joy of that. One of the things, you know, whenever, whenever I'm sitting with somebody and talking to them about being born again and about that, that process of coming to faith, there's a few things that I like to just emphasize. You can't give them the whole lot, but a few things I like to emphasize. I like to talk about who Jesus is, obviously. I like to talk about the fact that the people are made in the image of God. Every single one of us, no matter who we are, what we do, what we've done, we're made in the image of God. I like to emphasize the Holy Spirit. Because I don't see the Holy Spirit as an as a optional upgrade that you bolt on six months later after you get born again. I, I, I want to pray for people that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit immediately. Immediately. At that same moment. I think that's biblical. But one of the things I also emphasize is you're getting into a battle. Give it about 24 hours because all hell is going to break loose. Because the devil does not want you to walk with Jesus. And you need to know. I heard, <laughs> I heard a guy preaching on the street yesterday. And bless him. He, I admire his sincerity and his courage. But he said about how bring Jesus into your life and your whole life will get better. I thought, no, nah, mate. <laughs> I know what he means. We come alive for the very first time and we're fully alive and walking with him but there's a, if, if I tell you that walking with Jesus is going to make your life better, a week later you're going to come back and say it doesn't work. <laughs> you're going to come back and say it doesn't work because the, the devil's going to pound you for a, for a week and you're going to come to the conclusion, well, this walking with Jesus caper doesn't work because I've just had an awful week. So it's not about making your life better. It's about being fully alive for the first time. It's important to emphasize to new believers, you're in a battle. You need armor or you're going to get destroyed very, very quickly. A few things before we start looking at the armor itself. And as I say, we're only going to get to to one piece of it today, so don't be scared. It's God's armor. Now, we have this picture in our mind because Ephesians was written in prison. Paul, bless him, for the gospel was put in prison. And as he wrote this letter, he was probably chained to a Roman soldier And that might have been the thing that sparked him off to start thinking about armor. But it's highly unlikely that that Roman soldier in that prison was wearing his full battle outfit just to keep an eye on Paul. So it might have got his his mind thinking, but he's not so much thinking about, about the Roman soldier as he's thinking about the armor of God. 
This is not just, well, this is nice Christian armor and oh, look at my people and their wee outfits and they all look well. No, this is God's armor. He wears it as well. Let me, let me take you to Isaiah chapter 11 and also Isaiah chapter 59. I'm only going to lift a verse or two from each chapter. You don't need to go, but go if you want. Uh, Isaiah 11. Always, 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 when we're reading the New Testament, if we want to understand things, we should be thinking, where have I seen this before? Where have I seen this before? And when Paul talks about God's armor, if we know the Old Testament, our minds go back to the like of Isaiah 11, which is talking about the Messiah who will come. And it says in Isaiah 11, verse 5, righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness, the sash around his waist. That's a really unfortunate translation there. The garment around his waist. So we'll just go for that. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. In Isaiah 59, again, verse 15. Listen to the language that Isaiah uses that Paul then picks up seven or eight hundred years later. Isaiah 59, 15. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. That's a powerful verse in itself, isn't it? God looks to see, are there people who are going to fight for justice and intervene on behalf of justice? In verse 16, it says, he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. When Paul says put on the armor of God, he does not just mean it is loosely a Christian thing. It's God's armor given to you. It's like those scenes in, in movies where, where some old warrior comes along and presents his sword and his shield to some young whippersnapper who's going to go out and carry on the fight. This is my armor. You take it and put it on. So it's God's armor. It's also Jesus' armor. He was wearing it in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and in the other gospel accounts when he did battle with Satan. And he focused on truth and faithfulness and power and the word of God. Jesus wears this armor as well. And as I said earlier, we must put on the full armor. I'm going to remind you of this over and over again until it drives you mad. Because then you'll remember it. The breastplate of righteousness covers your your vital organs, covers your heart. But doesn't protect your feet, doesn't protect your head. You can't just put on one piece. You must have all of it. You can't, for example, say that, you know, Paul says in verse 17 about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You cannot have the attitude of, well, I've got the breastplate of righteousness on and the helmet of salvation. I'm saved. I'm born again. I pray a prayer. But I'm not really that into the Bible. Don't, 
make that big a deal about reading it every day or trying to bring my life into line with it or into alignment with it. It's, it's not, I, I don't really, that's not a big priority for me. With all the love in my heart, I just want to tell you, spoiler alert, you're going to fall. You cannot stand without the full armor of God. And Christians need to get that. We need to really get that. Leave off one piece, we're going to fall. We're going to slip. So this is, you know, Paul says, he says it both times in verse 11 and verse 13, put on the full armor, put on the whole lot. In Greek, it's the word panoplia. If you've ever heard of an English word panoply, it means like an extensive, impressive collection of something. Panoply. And we're to put on the panoply of God, the full armor. Also, this is a community project. Mentioned this last week. When Paul writes a letter, he's writing to a community of Christians. He's not writing to one person. Do not take this and say, well, this is just about me putting on my armor to make it through the day. Yes, that's fine to think of it that way, but don't think of it exclusively that way. He writes to the church and he says, church, together you are to put on the armor of God. Together. Together you are to live righteously. Together you are to revere truth. Together you are to handle the sword of the Spirit. Together. You've got to watch each other's backs, church. No lone rangers. We are a community. We cannot stand alone. We can't stand alone that's not explicit in the text when Paul talks about standing but I'm telling you it's there in the letter and in the heart of Paul we cannot stand alone I am being disobedient if I don't watch your back spiritually speaking and I am being proud and arrogant if I live in a way that makes it out like I don't need you to watch my back all right this is a community project. We are part of an army. We're not Lone Ranger soldiers. We are part of a collective of people. And we've got to look out for each other. We've got to. Again, we'll come back to that again and again and again. And also some of the armor is defensive. Most of it's defensive. And some of it towards the end is offensive armor. Some of it is to keep us safe. And some of it is to attack and do damage to the enemy. Another simple little verse about spiritual warfare, just to hang out there, because we do overcomplicate this. First priority in spiritual warfare, who are you looking at? Who are you facing? Who are you postured towards? If we get so caught up with trying to engage with the devil, <laughs> he'll be happy as Larry because he'll just go away and say, well, I just distracted him from an hour and he didn't pray. <laughs> He didn't worship God because he was too busy talking to me. <laughs> Get your posture right. You want to you wanna win the victory in spiritual warfare when the devil comes against you with doubt and despair and discouragement and guilt and shame and slander and all th sorts of things like that. You want to overcome him? Submit yourself to God. As soon as you hear that nasty person coming with his lies and his slander... The enemy, you turn to God. Father, I love you. Father, thank you that I'm your child. 
Father, thank you that King Jesus died for me and rose from the dead for me. Father, thank you that I'm filled with your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you that that enemy who is trying to get into my heart and into my mind with his lies, he's a liar and he's the father of lies and I can see right through him. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Father, give me strength. Help me, Lord. I love you, Lord. Get your posture right. Face the Father. You want to do damage to the enemy, face the Father. Every time I'm worshiping him, my hands are in the air and I'm praising him. Maybe praying at home or whatever and I'm just worshiping him. And all the time, stamp, stamp, stamp. But my focus is not down there. My focus is on him. Worshiping him, glorifying him. And the devil then is just collateral damage as I do that. Get yourself focused in the right direction. So the first piece of armor that's mentioned is the belt of truth. As I've read there in Isaiah 11, it's worn by the Messiah. It's worn by God himself. The Roman soldier wore a skirt. It's encouraging, isn't it? The ancient world was conquered by drag queens. <laughs> he, had a, he had like a flowing undergarment and a, and a tunic. And if he was off duty, that was let just to flap about and kept him cool but whenever he was on duty whenever he was going to battle he would he would pull that garment up he would roll it all up and he would use a belt to hold it tight in against his waist so it would not trip him up would not get in the way and that's where the old the old phrase gird up the loins comes from gird up the loins it means get your flowing garment pull it up Put the belt on it and keep it tight and keep it out of your way. Gird up the loins. It is a phrase that speaks of preparing for action. Preparing for action. And even still, we do stuff like this. And we do it instinctively. It doesn't matter who we are. So many of us, when we're about to do something, do a bit of work or whatever, up come the sleeves. Don't even think about it. Just out of the way. Whether that's doing the dishes or working in the garden or whatever, up come the sleeves. You get yourself ready for activity. Gird up the loins. And what Paul says is that what will allow us to stand is if we put on the belt of truth. Truth has got to grasp us at the heart of who we are. The psalmist, as as David wrote this psalm, Psalm 51, this was after his adultery with Bathsheba. And he wrote this psalm and, he's, and he said that God desires truth in the inner parts. Not just an outward appearance of truth, but truth at the very core of who we are. And truth has already come up in the letter to the Ephesians a couple of times. And in chapter 4 verse 15, Paul has spoken about speaking the truth in love. And also in chapter 4 verse 25, he said we must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to our neighbor. It's one of the joys of studying a letter and you just start to see the themes that have been dripped in along the way all starting to come together at the end. So what does he mean? Does he mean, when he says put on the belt of truth, does he mean that we need to know the truth or that we need to live the truth, live in integrity? There's a guy called William Gurnall who wrote a big old book a long time ago called The Christian in Complete Armor. Massive beast of a book. And he said that some people make a choice between whether this means knowing the truth or living truthfully. 
And then he goes on to say, you can't have one without the other. If you know the truth, you should then live truthfully. So whenever Paul talks about putting on the belt of truth, we don't have to make a decision here between these two things. It's both of them. It's both of them. We must be able to let the truth of who Jesus is grasp us and tuck everything into that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Carl Martin, who's the leader of Central Church over in Edinburgh, and has, he's written a couple of books that have really blessed me this last few months, one called Stand and one called Lead. He says, you will not be fit to engage in battle if you are not confident and standing on the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done, and that you are secure in him. Your stand will be fatally flawed if you rely on what and how you feel. Do you feel saved? Doesn't matter. Is the truth that you're (coughs) saved? That matters. And we must know the truth of who Jesus is. I've told you often that in my Christian journey, there have been some massive moments. There was the moment when I was 21 of complete surrender to God. The moment of, of just giving my life to Jesus and following him. Then a few years later, everything just sort of seemed to change again, shift gear. When I started following Jesus, I was following him, I guess, because he died for me. And he paid for my sin and I knew that I needed that and I wanted to go to heaven and therefore I needed to follow him. But once I got to know him in the Gospels, I wasn't following him anymore because I had to. I was following him because he's incredible. He is amazing. I love him. (laughs) No shame about that. Sometimes Christians are a wee bit awkward about... They whisper, they're not, they're not that sure about this. It's not very masculine or whatever. I love him because he is incredible. He's amazing. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he died and rose again? Do you believe that he's given you new life? These are the truths that we've got to put on as the belt. Carl again says that believing is about basing the weight of your life, your future, your walking and everything on what you believe to be the truth. It's not just intellectual, I believe that. It is active. I believe that and I stake my life on it. So it affects how I act, how I live, who I am. Do you know him? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Or do you know the Jesus of of some hardline Northern Ireland evangelicalism, if there's such a word? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Do you know the Jesus who touched people that no one else would touch? The lepers, the women who were declared to be unclean. Do you know the Jesus who touched them that the religious people wouldn't touch? Do you know the Jesus who ate with people that the religious people would not eat with? Went to Zacchaeus' house. Everybody hated Zacchaeus. Jesus goes to his house for dinner. Do you know that Jesus? I love that Jesus. I love that Jesus. Do you know that the religious people hated him? Do you know that he never sinned? 
and yet sinners flocked to him. That has profoundly affected my life. And it's something that I've just found myself meditating on over and over again in recent months. He was perfectly holy. And so many of us in this country, we see holiness as something that is judgmental and condemning and repulsive. And we don't want to go near it because it makes us feel bad. That's not holiness. Jesus was perfectly holy and sinners flocked to him in their droves. There was something beautiful and attractive about his holiness. Have we put on the belt of who he really is? Do you know that he is Israel? Do you know that all Israel found its fulfillment in him? And that so much of his life, particularly his early ministry, reflected the experiences of Israel in the Exodus. Do you know who he is? Do you know that he is the temple where the presence of God dwells? Do you know who he is? Do you want to do spiritual warfare, church? Stop shouting at the devil and put on the belt of who Jesus really is. He is the truth. And Paul makes it even clearer in Romans 13, 14. He says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever odd image comes to your mind as you think of that, I don't care what it is. But basically, when I put on that belt of truth, I'm not just putting on doctrine. I'm not just putting on a few theological facts. I'm putting on Jesus. He's going to hold everything together in this armor. And allow me to run well. So there is an aspect of this that is about the truth. The belt of truth is about the truth of what we know and what we believe about Jesus. But then also the belt of truth is about how we live. Do we live truthfully? Do we live with integrity? This is where Paul has talked about truth already in the letter as I mentioned earlier. Carl Martin again, the number one turnoff for non-believers is Christians who don't walk the way they talk. We don't always get it right, folks. We need to learn to acknowledge when we've screwed up instead of trying to defend ourselves. Because it is a massive turnoff to non-Christians whenever they see us talking about living a certain way, talking about eating with people that no one else would eat with, talking about touching people that no one else would touch, and then not doing it. Do we live truth? Does the integrity of the gospel come out in our lives? I was thinking about this this morning. Satan hates truth. He loves twisting truth. There are people whose full-time job is to twist the truth. They're called politicians. (laughs) And within that area of politicians, you've got the phenomenon of the spin doctor. The spin doctor. It's a great term, isn't it? And what the spin doctor, well, a couple of definitions of a spin doctor from Merriam Webster Dictionary, it says that the spin doctor is a, personal, a person responsible for ensuring that others interpret an event from a particular point of view. So they'll be trying to make the politician look good. Even though the politician's done something stupid, the spin doctor will come, take the truth, Not necessarily tell lies, but take the truth and just put a spin on it. Just twist it slightly before it's released out there to the general public. And will deceive them and lead them to believe something that's not actually true. 
The Urban Dictionary is a bit more blunt. A spin doctor is someone who twists facts for political purposes. Now, have you ever twisted facts? Have you ever found yourself in a scenario where you've been able to walk away and said, well, I told the truth, I didn't tell any lies, but you twisted the truth. You put a wee spin on it so that you didn't come out looking too bad. You ever done that? Uh, I remember. <laughs> I remember an incident where uh, a couple of boys in school gave another few boys a hiding. It was, yeah, I really shouldn't record this. Um, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so whenever it was investigated afterwards, the, the question was, was asked, you know, what, did, did, did these guys hit you? Did these guys punch you, attack you, whatever? Yes, yeah, they did. They came and they, 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 they hit us and punched us. That's truth. But that was only part of the truth. The rest of the truth was that the guys who got hit had been speaking very offensively about the sister of the guys that had hit them. And then there was more truth. You see, you tell half the truth, these guys hit me, and that's half the truth. And you've told the truth, and you walk away saying you didn't tell any lies, but you've twisted things. You've put a spin on it. It was funny afterwards that you know the guys got sanctioned, but all the male staff, you know, as they walked past them in the corridor, were like, "Well done, boys. <laughs> well done for sticking up for your sister." <laughs> we can spin the truth. You ever done that? Oh boy, be careful. Be careful that the devil doesn't get a foothold. We can spin the truth. We can tell. 60-70% of the truth and leave out 30 or 40% we haven't told any lies but we've spun it to make ourselves look good that's not living with integrity folks that's a challenge for me it's a challenge for all of us in Paul's other passage and I'm nearly done on spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 I want you to think about the belt of truth as, as I read this. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The belt of truth, knowing the truth and living with integrity and truth in our lives enables us to demolish the arguments and the strongholds that the devil tries to build in our hearts and minds about who we are, about our past, about our future, about whatever. It is through knowing the truth that we demolish those things. As I walked through the door this morning, a verse came into my mind. And I want to read it to you from Revelation 19. And with this, I'm closing. Well, before I read it, I read that FBI agents, when they're trained to spot counterfeit money, are never given any counterfeit money. They're just given the real thing. 
and have to analyze it and look at it and look at it in different lights and tilt it and turn it and, and look through it and do all sorts of things with it. They're not given fake notes. They're given the real thing. So they get so used to what the real thing looks like. Whenever they do see a fake, they spot it in a moment. And that's the way we should be with Jesus, with the word of God. We should be so consumed by him and by truth. Instead of getting consumed by the counterfeit, get consumed with the real, the truth. And then you can spot the counterfeit a million miles away. Revelation 19 says in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. It's Jesus. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, that's the truth, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the truth. Put him on. Put on the whole armor of God or you will not stand. We've only got one bit done today. This is the reason we sing things like, I will rest on your promises. My confidence is your faithfulness. The word faithfulness and the word truth are very similar. In fact, in the Old Testament, they are the same word. These are not just throwaway lines. And as we sing that sometime during these next few songs, you're putting on the belt of truth. Father, thank you for the truth that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, that he is the truth. And may we learn more of him and who he really is by encountering him ourselves through your word, through a personal walk with you, Jesus, through the community of faith following you together. And Lord, I ask that you would help me and help us to be truthful, to live with integrity. Father, that there be no spin doctors in your church, that none of us would play around with the truth to suit ourselves, that we would hold our hands up and acknowledge whenever we've done wrong, repent and apologize and put it right. Father, help us to be truthful because the world is watching and the devil is watching. And if we live with a lack of truth in our lives, we will not stand. We want to stand, Father. Help us. Thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for one another. Thank you, God, for the opportunity now to praise you and to lift you up. And Lord, I pray that you will just cause us all to to ponder these words, to ponder what we've learned and what we've seen in your word today, to chew on it and to live in it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.